Welcome to this episode of the Biblical Theology Briefing. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined live in our virtual studio by my good friend and my co-host, the man who is all over the United States these days, Ben Glad. Ben, how you doing? Oh, I am peachy. I am... Well, are we, are we talking with March Madness? How am I doing? Well, are we talking, how am I doing in general? <laughs> well, Because one has tribulation attached. That's right. And the other one has new creation attached. That's right. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's talk about your bracket. Did you get any of the final four teams? No, no, no. No, are you kidding me? No. <laughs> I was good. I had picked Texas over Alabama in the finals. And so when... When Alabama lost, I'm like, oh, that hurts. It's okay, though, because Texas will certainly win. They're they're going to go at least to the Final Four, probably the championship. Yeah. And then when they lost a couple days ago, I was just like, this is rid- – I have never – Matt, have you ever witnessed a, a, the madness of March like this? Not not with so many top seeds. With all I, – I don't think there's ever been a, a Final Four that's not had a one, two, or three seed mm. make it. I mean mm. – that's just uh, unheard of. You know, you had Purdue losing in the very first round, uh, which is only the second time that's ever happened to have a 16 right. to one. Right. And then, you know, you had Kansas losing in the, in the round of 32. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, what was it? in the sweet 16, then you had Alabama. And then who was the fourth one? And they started Houston. dropping like flies. They started dropping like flies. Houston. Yeah. Houston. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. dropping. It's just like, crazy. My kids were going crazy. It was hard. So this was the first time they had filled out brackets, and they had such a blast. But the problem was that because everything was upside down, every their brackets are like, wait a minute, this is no longer fun. My right. bracket is not working. <laughs> like, do you see? So the first couple of rounds are having a blast. This is yeah. great. And then they're like, wait a minute, Dad, nobody's winning. Right. <laughs> On all the brackets. Like, how is this fun? Nobody is getting anything. So we ran into that issue this year. Yeah, yeah, but then you can watch for just the enjoyment of good basketball and upset. So, who do you want to win? Who do you want to win at this point? Man. San Diego? No, Florida, I, I mean Florida gonna, Atlantic. Probably, if you're going to force me to pick one of the four that's left, I'd probably go with Florida Atlantic. There's a uh, so Florida Atlantic. One of their best players is a guy named John L. Davis, who uh, went to high school at uh, in Gary, Indiana, not far from where we live. And so I actually watched him play in high school a few times. He's, he's a lot oh. of fun to watch. So I suppose that's the closest yeah. to a personal connection I've got. So I'll go with that. Man. Yeah, it's so it's, wide open. It's, it's it, so it, wide open. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's tough. It's tough. But also in the midst of this March madness, you've been traveling. I mean, you, you were out in California for a week. Yeah, I was there uh, during spring break, so we got in, what was it, like a week ago, and uh, we were there. I spent a couple of days in Santa Rosa, and very close to Sonoma, Sonoma County, there with the wine, and I spoke at a Bible conference at a uh, a little church up there, and we had so much fun. I did four lectures or four lessons on the topic is called Biblical theology for the life of the church. Mm. Uh, the first, the first lesson I just explained: what is biblical theology? We can, how can we discern it in the Bible? And then the next three lessons, I looked at four or th- um, three case studies from the Gospels. That, oh, hey, look, we can see 
the gospel writers that are doing biblical theology look at how they're reading it how can then we imitate it what are lessons that we can learn how can we apply it to our lives so it's a lot of fun i like doing this sort of thing i mean really i as long as i get to talk about the bible to people who like the bible love the love god's word we're all on the same page yeah that's great so um was this it, in any way, because before you were at RTS, you were a you were on staff at a church out in California, but I can't remember where that was. Right, that was in the high desert, which is Los Angeles. This was to the north, okay, like, uh, close to San Francisco and sure. San Jose. So this was this was a, a ways up. But they are, I will say that the uh, my a friend from college, from the Master's College, he is an elder at this church. In fact, the pastor. Lance Wallace, he is a grad of the Master's Seminary. So they like, you know, kind of the John MacArthur spin on things. They like the Bible and they, you know, they love uh, the Reformed faith and, and, and these sorts of things. So, okay. Um, so, yeah. So, they is there me. anywhere, uh, are those available anywhere? Were those recorded? Are those posted? I on what you know? don't know. Okay. I don't know. Maybe. Well, if we if we figure that out, maybe we can post some links, but <laughs> okay. if not, no big deal. Sure. sure. Um yeah, so uh you're you're just a traveling man, but it sounds like you also yeah, got some vacation so. mixed in there as well, so that's good. Yeah, so we saw I'm a big Goonies fan. We saw a couple places where the Goonies were filmed. Yeah. And um like where the rock, it's kind of like a an arch way where the where the rock it, it, that they're in the in the Pacific Ocean. And yeah, it was just great. The weather was a little crazy because California had a lot of flooding at this time, but we really had a terrific time. We also spent some some time in San Francisco. San Francisco is the most amazing city, but they somebody will steal the shirt off your back. So you have got <laughs> to lock down. You have got to lock down all your belongings. So yeah. we, we really had, we ate well. We had a blast with friends. We made new friends. We really couldn't have had a better time. Good. That's great. That's great. Um, before we jump into our topic today, I also wanted to make sure we mentioned um, you have an event coming up with uh, with Greg Beal on preaching and biblical theology. Tell us about that event. Yeah, so this is more on the pastoral side of things. Greg and I are doing a one-day conference in Plano, Texas on April 28th, which is just a month out and it's four lectures. We're doing two plenary, uh, four plenaries and two breakouts. And we're just going to teach people how to understand the use of the old and the new. What is a quotation? What is illusion? How can we find them? And when we do find them, what do we do with them? And uh, how do we, and this is especially important because how do we preach them? How do we explain these connections to people? So Greg and I are really, really excited. This was Greg's idea. He reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to do this? Yes, of course. Talk about the new. Yes, of course. And um, I'm going to do one of the workshops and also do one of the plenaries. So it'll be great. it'll be a great time. We have a, uh, many, many people have signed up. We're hoping for more people. And we're just excited about meeting pastors and teachers from the area. In fact, people are several we know are flying in for this event. And uh, we can't we can't wait to to do it. Awesome. So it's still open. Like we'll we'll go ahead and uh, I need to give you the link, but there's a registration page. There are um, affordable hotels you can stay. In fact, I'm hoping to watch the Rangers play the Yankees that weekend. So the conference is on Friday, and the Rangers Yankees game is on Saturday. So I'm hoping to to fit that in there. Nice. 
So where exactly is the conference then in Texas? Plano, in in Plano, Plano. Texas. Okay. It's called the the Hope Center. It's a con- it's a very nice conference place. It's in Plano, Texas. Bunch of hotels, easy to get in and out of. So it, nice. Yeah. And Greg Greg is Greg teaches at RTS Dallas. Right. So it's a nice home. And there's a several churches in the area are sponsoring this. And um, so yeah. Awesome. All right. Oh, it's only fifty bucks. Fifty dollars. Are Dude. you kidding me? Fifty dollars. Fifty. That's like the price of one movie ticket. <laughs> yeah. These days you're right. You're I'm right. serious. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ben. So let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into our topic. Uh, we're since we're right on the cusp of this episode, will release uh, the week of Easter. So uh, let's talk some resurrection. All uh, right, one of my faves. Yeah. So um, obviously, uh, there's a lot of different directions we can go, uh, and I'm sure our conversation will wander about. Uh, but um, uh, what I what I thought would be helpful for us to to talk through a little bit is, um, obviously I think when a lot of pastors or even just uh, people in the pews think about resurrection, they immediately gravitate towards the uh, the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, which makes sense, uh, and they also think about also First Corinthians fifteen, the really the kind of the the longest discussion of the resurrection. Uh, in the New Testament, and, uh, and and maybe some Old Testament texts, maybe not as many. But uh, so let's start with in the Old Testament. Well, hold on, Matt, yeah. Matt, Matt, hold on, hold on. Let me ask you this. Let me. This is more pressing, Matt. Okay. This is this is a good question. Two questions. What do pastors typically get right about the resurrection? Okay. Um, Your average evangelical, so our yeah. audience, yeah, conservative I, evangelical. Your what are they doing a good job of? I think um, the average evangelical pastor probably does a good job of emphasizing the uh, the historical reality mm-hmm. of the resurrection. That I was, was a, I think a I agree literal physical body that Jesus mm-hmm. rose from the dead. It wasn't. Uh, just a spiritual resurrection, and it wasn't just some sort of or a figurative thing. resurrection, right? No, it was a Jesus was a a real physical human being who came back from the dead. I think, uh, and I think also most pastors probably do a good job of emphasizing what really what Paul emphasizes in First Corinthians fifteen, in the sense of if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Then, then the whole thing falls apart. It, mm-hmm. It's the it's the mm-hmm. linchpin, and it's the it's the foundation of everything. That uh, and I think most evangelical mm-hmm. pastors end yeah, up working a so. lot in that realm. Uh, in terms of that, what about you? They they, they 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 connected they connected faith. I would affirm that. So now let me let me I want to add anything. Let me add. Let me ask a second question. What do pastors get wrong? And maybe maybe it's when I say get wrong, I don't mean that maybe it, it maybe they fail to say something in addition to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're only only saying sixty percent of it or seventy percent. Like, are they, so maybe uh, I'm not saying what are they getting wrong per se. You know, how can they preach a robust sermon on the resurrection? Yeah, I, more I think, along those lines. Sure. Um, 
I think the I'd put it in in two two categories. One is I think a lot of pastors don't root the resurrection within the larger storyline of the Bible. Mm. And mm. so it feels like a very isolated event that mm. is almost like almost so unexpected that even you know the biblical writers would have been like whoa who could have seen that coming and <laughs> you know that's true yeah it, that's a good point right it, right admittedly you know the the disciples didn't expect it in as the events were unfolding even though Jesus told them repeatedly and part of the irony in uh Matthew's gospel is that the disciples don't believe the resurrection is going to happen, but the religious leaders who don't actually believe it go around saying, "Hey, let's let's secure the grave, just in mm-hmm. case the disciples mm-hmm. come to try to say that Jesus mm-hmm. rose from the dead." Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first mistake that a lot of pastors make is not rooting it in the larger storyline of the Bible. And I think the second uh, mistake, maybe not as common, is that I think at least some pastors fail to help people see the very practical, real uh, benefits and application of Jesus' resurrection for our everyday Christian life. Mm. Mm. So connecting those two, I think pastors struggle sometimes in terms of, they might say, oh, well, this gives us hope for the future. Absolutely true, 100%. But I think the sort of everyday, so what question of Jesus' resurrection means this, for my everyday experience of the Christian life, I think a lot of pastors don't draw those connections as clearly. Hmm. What about That's you? Really good. I, you know, I don't know if I would add to that. I, I think, I think that your first point about rooting, rooting resurrection sermons in the history of the Bible is so critical, and and we're going to talk a little bit more about this. Mm-hmm. But I think that would be the failure to one. And then the second one, I, as I, yeah, what difference does it make today? It's massive difference. You know, it really is. I mean, the reason why we worship on Sunday is because of the resurrection. I, I, I think pastors should just go into every Sunday morning saying, okay, today's about the resurrection. And now how can we work that out in today's passage? Or how can I at least mention this? I mean, it really is. I mean, the church gathers every Sunday to celebrate Christ sitting at the right hand of God, interceding, pouring out his spirit, ruling. Um, yeah, these are, these are amazing things. This is what we yeah. celebrate. This is the very focus of all of life. It's a shame that we only celebrate it once a year. We really should be celebrating it 52 weeks out of the year. Yeah. Amen. Something uh, that's just the only, you know, so I'm basically repeating you. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> but I think, but I think, but I think in, in other words, in other words, I agree. I don't think that pastor's, are getting things wrong per se. Mm-hmm. I just think that they're only telling half of the story. Tell me the other half. Tell me the yeah. other side of it. And so it's something more robust, something fuller. And maybe you spend three Sundays, maybe pastors just spend three Sundays talking about the resurrection or, um, you know, rather than just trying to squeeze. I really think that pastors feel very hamstrung because like, okay, my whole audience is going to be here on one day. And so I've got to squeeze, you squeeze everything in and the pressure is going to build. And so you end up, and this is sad, I was thinking about to say, you end up trying to simplify everything Mm -hmm. where, so that by the time you actually say it, you're saying nothing. 
you're confusing people because you've simplified it so much. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you maybe you say, hey, I know you guys are here for just one one or two weeks out of the year. Can you show up next week? Just show up next week. Just do it one more time so I can then fill this thing out. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, another another aspect of that, even from a preaching perspective, is I think because the the resurrection is such a big deal and there's so many different angles to it and different components to it and things that feed into it and implications that come out of it. Um, I think pastors could serve their congregations well, even just by thinking through all those different elements and saying, okay, over the next five years, over the next seven years, even like I might hit one of these areas hard in the midst of preaching on uh, on Easter Sunday, but also looking for ways, like you said, to to build it in to things they're already preaching. Because I, mm-hmm. as we're going to see, this mm-hmm. theme of resurrection is not just limited to isolated, uh, explicit texts, but it underlies so many things going on in the in the larger scope of the canon, and we're going to unpack some of those uh, as we go. So, well, okay. So let's, let's start with, um, in the old Testament. Um, now I, I think we were talking before we started recording, uh, that there's really probably the three most well-known resurrection texts in the old Testament. Uh, I, I refer to them as the sort of the Holy Trinity of, of resurrection texts in the old Testament, because they're very explicit, uh, at least as I see it are Isaiah 26 and uh, Ezekiel 37 and Daniel 12. Would you add any text mm-hmm. to that that are like explicit where you're like, this is clearly talking about resurrection and it's obvious. It doesn't take any right. sort of work. So minimalist, so minimalist, which would be your average Old Testament professor would say just Daniel 12. Uh, that is explicit as you are going to get it. Yeah. That really, I, I don't know if I've ever read anybody that says there is zero discussion of the Old Testament or of the resurrection of the Old Testament. No, that no, everybody admits Daniel 12 is the one text. And then more flexible ones will then see Isaiah 26 and yeah. Ezekiel 37. Some, right. And th- th- those who are a little bit more open. And then, but I think those three texts, I, I would agree, the only one would be. The one from uh, what's that Hosea four or is that Hosea six? And on the third yes. day he will yes. he will raise us. So yep. yeah, that would a, be a fourth. Yeah, that good. would be a fourth. Uh, yeah. So the, again, the, from my perspective, only four. I, I still think that's pretty narrow. But yeah, agreed. It's a start. It's a it start. Is. And um, <laughs> even even I think even some Old Testament scholars who are evangelicals will buy into the sort of narrative that critical scholars use in terms of, well, it's a doctrine that only developed later mm-hmm. that really it's the mm-hmm. result of, uh, a, oppression, a long, a persecution, long, slow process. And the Jews realizing, gosh, we're not going to experience the fulfillment of the promises in this life. So there must be some sort of next life or resurrection where yeah. God will raise us from the dead to fulfill his promises as if right. there's nothing earlier in the Bible about resurrection because you right. don't have it, that's explicit right. that's right. texts like a Daniel 12. Right. 
Right. They'll say resurrection is apocalyptic. Yeah. And apocalyptic is late in Israel's career. Therefore, resurrection is late in Israel's career. That's yeah. typically how that line of reasoning goes. Yeah. Every, you know, I, Matt, I mean, I, I mean, I graduated in 2008 and I've been, you know, you and I have been doing what we do for a long time now, at least at least some days it feels a long time. Other days it doesn't feel long at all. (laughs) But one of the things that can, that I, that really bothers me, the older I get and the more that I do what I do is, is looking out over the horizon of what commentators and scholars do. And one of the most pervasive problems, whether it's you're an evangelical or not evangelical or old Testament or new Testament scholar, and that is minimalism and minimalism is one of the poisons that is within the church and even outside the church. And that is an unwillingness an unwillingness to see connections within the text in statements there is unless really is unless we get in a, a super super explicit statement yeah. it's not there and yeah. that problem is killing so many good doctoral students and so many good commentaries and i got to be honest so many good uh sermons that there is that somebody needs to talk about minimalism and maximalism, which is probably where we know, we know some people who are maximalists and maybe we're a little less so but we really need to have we would we really should do a whole episode on minimalism what to do with it how to think of it because minimalism directly relates to resurrection you're really not going to get a more relevant topic to minimalism than the res- resurrection itself don't you think yeah i think so um and part of what's ironic and this will be a good segue into um why i think the new testament itself uh, itself helps us here is that when you look at uh, what the New Testament does in terms of talking about resurrection, um, and this is fresh in my mind because I'm working on my Luke commentary and I'm in chapter 20, and it's the encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees. And, you know, this it's the well-known story. The Sadducees come up and basically say, uh, so here's this scenario, Jesus. There's a brother. There's a guy who has a wife. The guy dies, and then he's got seven brothers. Each of them uh, fulfills their responsibilities according to the law to try to raise up offspring, but none of them are successful in doing that. And so uh, then finally, the last brother dies, the woman dies, and in the resurrection, Jesus, um, you know, whose wife is she? And it's supposed to be this like really absurd, like, this shows how dumb it is to think that there's resurrection. So they're trying to trap Jesus with this, right? And it's funny how Jesus responds to that. Um, but I, the thing I want to focus on in his response is after he shows that the that the premise of that whole thing is wrong in terms of the Sadducees are assuming this sort of strong, unbroken line of continuity between this age in the age to come. And Jesus is like, with regard to marriage, with, with regard, regard to marriage. marriage, with regard to marriage. And Jesus is like, actually, that's not how it works. There's going to be some <laughs> discontinuity when it comes to marriage. But then he says, but let's get to the real issue. Let's, let me show you how resurrection is actually in the Torah. You know, the only five books that you guys accept as authoritative anyway, I'm going to show you. And I love how he introduces it, you know, in the passage about the bush, 
<laughs> he's just like yeah let me let's talk about the passage you know the one about the bush and um so this is luke 20 um verse 37 but that the dead are raised even moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the lord the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob now he is not god of the dead but of the living for all live to him. Now, when you go back to Exodus 3, that, <laughs> I'm thinking resurrection. Right. I mean, it, it is not I mean, an explicit yeah, right, resurrection right. text. And Jesus is like, if you understand what is being said in Exodus 3, you would believe in the resurrection. It's there. And he bases right. it on the fact that God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, right. the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, as the God of the living, the one who made yeah. promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years before he ever appeared to Moses at the bush. Right. And yeah. that, and on that basis, Jesus says, if you have the right eyes to see it, that's talking about ultimately resurrection <clears throat> in, the, so, in, the, in the Torah. So Matt, would you so would minimalist? This is partially rhetorical. Would minimalist who would read so Old Testament evangelical scholars they read this and they say Jesus is wrong. Well, I, I don't think they're so bold as to say Jesus is wrong. Um, I, I don't think they're they're uh, bold enough to say that. But I think what they'd say is, in most cases, they'd say. Well, Jesus is allowed to do things with the Old Testament that we're not allowed to do because he's God. So Which, Jesus, so it's okay to make stuff up. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of where they end up, don't you think? Oh, it's 100% where they end up. I mean, 100%. I mean, I it's so pervasive. I would be embarrassed to say who it is and to it would be the easiest thing to just turn to a bunch of commentators and I would say, here are 20 people that all that say the same thing. And they would all say, uh, this is awkward. This is not the right way, but it's Jesus. Yeah. So it's okay. And it, in other words, the right doctrine from the wrong text. Exactly. Yeah, so. Anyway, yeah. but, 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 you know, he could have said he, this is, it's an amazing view because it, because the resurrection, Jesus, the, the way that he's doing it, it's so organic and it's so rooted in God. And who he is, the whole point is, is that because God is a covenant keeping God, he's a faithful God and he's a creator. So it's really two, it's two uh, attributes of God, God in his faithfulness and God in his creative power, because both of those come together perfectly in God. There are, yes, you have to have a, a resurrection, a massive resurrection. So he could have even, I think Jesus could have even gone back to Genesis 1 and 2 and said, mm -hmm. Because God is the God of Adam, there is resurrection. I think he could have backed it up even all the way and really made the minimalist nervous. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, you know, you've got to root it. I think you've got to root resurrection in Genesis 1 to say when God creates the world and he creates people, that he is committed to that endeavor and he is going to see it through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And even uh, in Genesis 3, I think, again, this is only really 
fully visible in light of later revelation, but even in the promise of the serpent crusher, you know, there is the, I think embedded in that idea of, um, of resurrection that that's ultimately what Adam and Eve are putting their hope in, in some way. Uh, oh, right. Right. So I think it's embedded even right. in that promise in Genesis three. Right. They, they, you know, and when the, and when Adam names his, his wife, Eve, he names her after the, after the fall and he names her after the promise that God yes. makes to Eve. And that's significant because that means that even though he's fallen and even though he's in exile, he believes he has faith in God's promise and he, and he is hopeful that God will keep his promise. And then, um, and then that's when we get, uh, this, this hope, this hope mm-hmm. for after death that he knows, I think there's an awareness that, that the old Testament saints, that they have some awareness that God will bring them back. And that it's not perfectly clear Right, you know, with what kind of body and these sorts of things, it's not it's not perfectly clear. But that God will vindicate them, and that God will establish them in the new creation with with Him. I mean, that's that's the pervasive storyline, and I think yeah. all the New Testament authors share that. And I think that most Israelites, faithful Israelites, would understand that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's even hinted at. And I think that's part of the reason why you see in Genesis five the reference to Enoch. Right. It's right. It's the repeated right. reference of and he died and he died and he died. And then there's this Enoch dude and God just takes him. So mm-hmm. here's a guy that escapes death and is brought into the fellowship of God directly. So even that little hint in there, I think, is is one of those uh, notes that that God leaves there as a, you know. There's hope beyond the, the grave there. Um, I also want to point out. You know, we talked about Luke 20. There's a similar dynamic in uh, in Hebrews 11, in that so, the so-called hall of faith, when he's discussing um, Isaac and Abraham offering Isaac as a uh, as a sacrifice. It's fascinating that when he gets to that story uh, in Hebrews 11, uh, the author says this, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now this is fascinating, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, I mean, What's fascinating is the author of Hebrews said, this is what Abraham thought, that even if Mm -hmm. I have to kill him, God is capable of raising Isaac back from the dead. Mm -hmm. It tells us. So, again, okay, I have to just get I just just get this out of my system. (laughs) Minimalists, minimalists are going to read this and say the author of Hebrews is crazy, is crazy because Mm -hmm. I. Uh, you know how you just go go to those Old Testament commentaries, those authors, and see how many of them yeah. talk about resurrection in that text, and I don't think any of them will, even though yeah. the author of Hebrews does. And so I would say that that's a minimalistic reading that the author yeah. of Hebrews has put his finger on something that is absolutely it's stunning, but I don't think it's crazy. I think it's a right reading. In other words, yeah. Abraham's faith. 
it's imperfect. We know it's imperfect, but it is real and it is it is so rock solid on God's promises that he says, Okay, I'm gonna kill my son. It's all right, God because God actually said that it's through it's through Isaac that God will keep his covenant. Because remember, we talked about Exodus 3 and God keeping his covenant. So it's through so in order for God to be the God of Exodus 3, he has to be the God in the Akedah, mm-hmm. and, and 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 that is the the the, the sacrifice of, uh, of of Isaac here, yeah. and so really, I think this is a good reading, and I don't, and I think it's an apostolic reading, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a healthy organic, it's a reading that has integrity to it, yeah, and um, yeah. yeah, I think it's I th- but I think it's right on the money that Abraham he. He saw, okay, God's God's going to keep His promise. So when I kill my son, He's going to, however that's going to work, He's going to do it. Yep. Yeah. And don't you th- also think that these two ex- uh, specific uh, texts in the New Testament, both what Jesus does here in Luke twenty and then in Hebrews, uh, don't you think that that is a further indication that we should be looking for resurrection type narratives? in the Old Testament itself, right. where, where it may not be explicit, but that there are characters who experience a resurrection-like vindication. Um, mm-hmm. And when you start to look for those, you're like, oh my goodness, they're all over. Everywhere. The they're everywhere. Right. right. I mean, yeah, you know, in the Joseph narrative, yep. he's vindicated, you know, from jail and from the depths. And, yeah. and one way, one, one easy way to do it is to, is to read through the Psalms and see how the Psalms comment on these same narratives. And then when they do humiliation, exaltation, these sorts of things, she all, you know, they're looking underworld. They're, they're looking, they're, they're commenting on these narratives. And so they seize upon death, exaltation, vindication, any kind of language like that is going to hit, Hey, you need to read this as, I mean, I would say just the whole movement. In fact, uh, Morales makes this point in his terrific ESBT volume, volume number two. He says that when Israel goes through the Red Sea, and they God has has pulled them, has has uh, brought them out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea. That when they go through Red Sea, that's a movement into death. Mm-hmm. So they're in the chaos of waters. They're in rebellion. He's bringing them through death, and then he brings them to Sinai. And so he says, that's life, that's resurrection. So there's movement from death to life, to yeah. renewal, to resurrection, and planting them into the promised land is a new cre- is a new creational act. So even, even God taking his people from Egypt, passing through the Red Sea, and planting them in the promised land, that in itself is an, is an expectation of resurrection. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, earlier. So you it's mentioned- in, in other words, you have you have tight narratives, you have narrow, narrow patterns with individuals, namely Abraham and Isaac, but you also have broad patterns with Israel, a corporate yes. notion. So you have yes. big notions and you have little notions. Yeah. And in particular, on the on the corporate element, we have the Hosea six passage, which you mentioned right. earlier. Right. Um, and then Ezekiel thirty seven. Which very uh, is, you know, very much basically both prophets saying because of Israel's rebellion, they they deserve death. And there is a sense of national death. They're sent into exile. Yep. They're no longer in the land 
all the sort of structures that that organize their corporate life are destroyed essentially and what's needed is a resurrection they need to be brought mm-hmm. back to life and mm-hmm. that is talked about both in that Hosea 6 passage as well as in uh, the Ezekiel 37 passage. But what's fascinating about those is, again, this is where your minimalist comes in, right? This is They look at that and go, oh, that's just national restoration. That's just returning to the land. That's just... It's like, still resurrection language. Right. It's still resurrection. It's still resurrection language, no matter how you slice it. Even if it's... Fig- this is what I can never understand. Even though if it's figurative or... Cor- it's still resurrection language. I, I don't... Yeah. You know, how did he get there? They want to they portray it... As such, if it weren't, yeah, I don't buy it. Absolutely. I I think you're right. Well, um, let's talk about one of the other areas we identified earlier in our discussion is how pastors often miss the connections between resurrection and some of the other major biblical theological themes that span the canon. So um, I figured it'd be good for us to talk maybe about some of those. So uh, we can't hit them all because uh, there's too many. But what are what's a what's another major biblical theological thread or theme that uh, people often miss the connection with resurrection? Yeah. Um, so Jeff Brannon wrote a volume number seven in the ESBT about resurrection, and in that he connects it to he connects resurrection to temple and new creation and ruling kingdom. And I think that's just a great way to kind of pull it all together that. Resurrection, and I think most Christians, I think most pastors view this, that most pastors view resurrection narrowly. That is, they just view it as a, we are re-embodied, we are, we have a new body, and we are in heaven, and whatever resurrection is there. See, it's super vague at that point. I think most pastors would have a hard time talking about our resurrected state mm-hmm. eternally, you know, forever. Like, what that looks like, I think pastors would really struggle there. Well, I think it's because they haven't combined resurrection with kingdom, new creation, and God's presence. We're going to have glorified bodies in the new heaven, in the presence of God, where we will rule with him. That's it. So resurrection is the equation, is the means by God, that that God will, will preserve his promises to us. It's, we, we have to be resurrected for everything else to work. Mm Mm-hmm. We can't roll without without a resurrected form. We can't be in the very presence of God in his fullness without our bodies. We can't. You see, it just doesn't work without bodies. It doesn't work without creation. So I think you've got it. Once you tie it together to these other doctrines, so you can go back and study kingdom, creation, temple, God's presence, and then see, oh, yeah, that's resurrection too. Yeah, so then you can start to put all the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I Maybe I would add in addition to that, um, and this is something that I touch on in my my ESBT volume in terms of volume three. Is that volume three? It is volume, volume three. Yes, volume three. Yep. Um, it's it's relationship to the major theme of sin, exile, and restoration from exile. So again, that's tied to the the idea of God's presence. That resurrection mm-hmm. is what. Uh, prepares us for our experience, our full experience of God's presence in the new creation, and so it's a it's not just a restoration of what 
Adam experienced in the garden. It is an intensification and a full realization of everything God intended it to be. So Mm -hmm. it's not just, oh, we get back to like we were like Adam and Eve were in the garden. No, we're in a heightened, escalated, fully realized Mm -hmm. experience of God's presence with no longer any possibility of rebellion against him and getting to enjoy not just a small sanctuary named Eden in one small piece of creation, but the entire renewed cosmos as a sanctuary of God, where we dwell with him as priests and kings who reign and prophets as well, who speak God's Mm -hmm. words to each other in that fully realized new heavens and new earth. Mm. Yeah. In fact, in fact, you could even say that Adam before the fall, he needed a better body Mm -hmm. because his body, his body cannot enjoy God's full presence. And, and, and theologians point out that his body had possessed the ability to sin, which, yes. well, it did. That's right. That we, we need a body that cannot sin and cannot do wrong. So we need a body that can prevent sin, and we need a body that can be in God's presence. And this body that we have now can have neither of those. Yeah. So even 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 Adam pre-fall needed yes. a new existence. You know, one of the things, so I worked on some of this for my dissertation and it was so striking is that it's almost without exception. There may be a few texts out there, but almost without exception, Jews in the first century and a little bit prior believed that the resurrection would be a return to Eden, a return. They called it the glory of Adam. Yeah. To recapture what was lost. And Paul, Paul in first Corinthians 15 says, Oh, even in Genesis two, Oh, that's old Adam. That's no good. We got to go beyond a pre-fall state. We've got to go into a last Adam state, an existence that is even greater than the original Adam. And it's that piece right there. It's almost distinctively Christian. And, and, And it may be, there may be just a few texts out there, but for the most part, Christians have the most robust and distinct view of the resurrection, even more so than than Jews in the first century. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good. Um, one other thing I think we should touch on is we talked earlier about uh, not making the connection between sort of the uh, between Jesus resurrection and the practical implications for our everyday spiritual life. Mm -hmm. So um, why don't you, uh, what are some that come to mind immediately in terms of some of the very practical implications, the so what of Jesus rose from the dead and I am united to Jesus by faith. So I share in his resurrection. Therefore, this is what it means for my everyday Christian life. What are some things that come to mind when you think about some of those practical implications? I don't want to sin. I mean, I still sin, but I don't want to. And we have the ability, Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. And we already are enjoying, Paul even says that we're raised up with Christ if you're a believer. And so because we're now in Christ, we've placed our faith in him. There's a sense in which spiritually, uh, we are we are resurrected beings, and and how do we know that? Because there's something new in our hearts that says, mm-hmm. "I want to be like Christ, and I'm going to obey Him, even though it's it's imperfect." 
and yes. we go up and down in our it's imperfect and we do go up and down in our faith it's real and there is a real faith there's a real obedience there and because there's a real obedience we can then say one day we are going to obey fully and that's going to be at the resurrection but because the resurrection is a future thing that's already been activated inside us this is why the the book of john i love the book of the gospel of john because the word belief in john is very much it very much captures this it's a quality of belief mm-hmm. not it says so it says eternal life life in john is a is a resurrection life so if you believe in jesus we are experiencing resurrection life here in the now it's not just a future thing we enjoy this reality now and it propels us to love god it propels us to do what is right and it really makes all the difference every single day we live in light of our resurrected uh state yeah future state in spiritual state there's not a, there's not a second there is not a second that goes by in the christian life that is untethered from the resurrected state yeah that's really good um I, i'm gonna i'm actually gonna plug so uh some of our listeners may not know, Ben and I wrote a book together called Making All Things New, Inaugurated Eschatology for the Life of the Church. And Ben, you've got a really nice section in here in your chapter on uh, life in the overlap of the ages. Oh, yeah, I did. I forgot that I wrote yeah. that chapter. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really good. And it deals, uh, at least a significant part of it, deals specifically with this particular uh, subject. So I'd encourage uh, our listeners to check that out. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, another... What would you add? What would you... What? So how would you apply this? Yeah. So um, I, I think in addition to what, uh, what you said, I would probably tie in, um, in particular, that uh, Jesus' resurrection enables him to give us the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, uh, mm-hmm. and this is kind of rooted in John 7, at the end of that mm-hmm. passage, John seven thirty nine, uh, he makes the comment, the Spirit could not be given, basically, until Jesus was glorified. And so now because of Jesus' resurrection, we have God's Spirit dwelling in us to empower us to obey, which is one of the great promises that the prophets talked about in terms of the new covenant of God putting his spirit in inside of us and causing us to walk in obedience. And that is rooted ultimately in Jesus rising from the dead and then giving his people his spirit. The spirit of the one who rose from the dead dwells in us to give us both the desire and the ability to obey. And that's good news because it's something I'm convinced one of the great lies the enemy tells believers is you'll always be like that. You'll never change. Mm. You'll, Mm. you'll never get over or get past this particular temptation or that sort of thing. And we're not denying the reality that there might be particular temptations that believers have to struggle with and fight against their entire life. That is true. But it is a lie from the pit that says you can't obey in that area. Mm -hmm. You have no Mm -hmm. ability to obey. God has given us his spirit as a result of Jesus' resurrection to enable us 
to obey him. And that is mm-hmm. fantastic news mm-hmm. as we live in a mm-hmm. sin soaked world. Yeah, that's, I think that's really good. Now, let me ask this is 15 seconds. Here we go. We got to, <laughs> we got to answer this question. This is so, so common. If the old Testament anticipates Jesus resurrection, as we've been saying, then why did the disciples not believe it? Yeah, well, I think part of that answer is, um, you know, their, I think their hardness of heart. And I think, you know, you look at that Luke 24 passage that Jesus has to open their minds to understand the scriptures. That um, I, I think it's one of those things that Jesus' resurrection was hidden in plain sight. That mm-hmm. once mm-hmm. once it happened, and Jesus could say, "See, this is what it was pointing to all along." Now it's something they can't unsee when they go back and look at the Old Testament. So that'd be my immediate take. What yeah. about you? Yeah, I think so. I think I would say that, of course, and I would also say that, as we mentioned, the, the Old Testament's anticipating the resurrection of a group of people. Yeah. That's good. Whereas Jesus is just the first fruits of the group. So there's the yeah. one in the many and yep. they weren't in. So, so when the disciples are like, what do you mean? Jesus is raised. I'm not raised. Are you raised Thomas? Yeah. Thomas? Thomas is like, I'm not raised. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not raised. So they're like, well, obviously he can't be raised because if he's raised, we're raised and it's the very end of history. Right. So that's going to get sorted out. And it also helps explain why in Acts 1, you have the disciples asking the question, mm-hmm. is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they're thinking, okay, the resurrection's happened to Jesus. Resurrection and restoration are like us. this. When's right. it happening, Lord? It's and happening. so it helps make sense of that question, uh, why they're asking that. Because you're right, they they weren't they didn't have a category for an individual rising first and mm-hmm. then later his people rising to new life with them physically. Mm-hmm. They're obviously they, mm-hmm. they experience spiritual resurrection uh, through their union with Christ, but not a physical resurrection until the end. Right. And you can see if we, if we read, if you just read through Paul's epistles, we see that the early church struggled with the relationship between Jesus resurrection mm-hmm. and the believers resurrection. Yeah. And there are those who denied it or, just went wild and crazy with it the other way. So, yeah. so it, it's a it's a little bit of a balancing act here. And so Paul, on a number of occasions, has got to clear the air here because of uh, because some some things are happening unexpectedly, and one of the, and this is one of those big things that's happening. So, yeah, yeah, this Absolutely. is a tricky. So, what what kind of resources do we have, or that you would recommend, Matt? Have yeah. you written? Have you have you written anything in a accessible way for these pastors and teachers? Well, um, the thing I'll probably point people to first here is uh, many moons ago now, how many years was this? How this many is, moons? Yeah. So 20, how many new moons? Yeah. How many new moons? So 2016, um, I was, uh, I did a, a, a little segment on the Desiring God podcast where Tony Reinke interviewed me and I did a thing on 10 ways that Easter changes everything. So it's focused on the resurrection. 
And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. There's both the audio as well as the transcript that lays out um, 10 different ways that Jesus resurrection uh, matters for us. And so I'll point people that direction. Um, What about you? Uh, Obviously you've got your, you got your ESBT. I mean, your, your ESBT. So, so Adam, I did one on Adam, but Jeff Brandon's is really good. His just came out a couple months ago and it's on the resurrection and it's really good. It's very accessible. It's very robust, and I think it's just a terrific. I would also recommend uh, Tom Wright's N.T. Wright, Resurrection of the Son of God. It's a huge volume, yeah. but it's so good. It is, it's not an easy volume just because it's – I mean, it really is massive. I'm sure yeah. that he has 10 other little books that summarize it. <laughs> so you could just find – you can just find that wherever that would be. Yeah. But Tom Wright is very, very good here. And he's very good at connecting Christ's resurrection to the story of Israel. Yes. I don't always buy into what he's saying. Agreed. But on this particular on this particular topic, he's very good here. So I wish that yeah. more reform folk and evangelicals would follow him at this point. And that, that big volume it, it goes into detail about oh. um Greco Roman backgrounds in terms of what they thought of in terms of the afterlife and what Jewish and the answer is they did it. They yes. did it. Yeah. They did it. They did it. At least only, not- only. Yeah. In fact, if you were just to study world religions today, nobody has resurrection like outside of Christianity and Judaism right. yep. because it's so rooted. It's so rooted in monotheism and it's so rooted in God as creator. Yeah. If you don't have monotheism and God as creator, you don't have resurrection. Like it yeah. cannot exist. And there's yeah. a reason why yep. these other religions don't have that. Yeah, you get you get things like reincarnation, right? But not resurrection in terms of no. embodied existence. No. Yeah, it's <clears throat> it's fascinating. So and anyway, it's the- sad. It's sad because I don't. I mean, how unbelievers? I mean, uh, you know, what are you? Man, I just don't know how unbelievers can live through the day and overcome great difficulty when they're like, "Man, I this is it. This is just the end of my existence. I hope yeah. I hope I lived a fun life. I you know I just I don't get it." Yeah, Amen, Amen. Well, Ben, we better wrap this up. We've mentioned some resources. Uh, we'll throw those in the show notes for people to uh, to check out. But uh, any last thoughts you wanted to share on? resurrection on pastors preaching it i mean we've we've covered a lot of ground i don't know if there's anything that you're like man i didn't get a chance to say this i the only other thing is there's a really good book by alan thompson called acts of the risen lord yes and it is so good it's about the book of it connects the book of acts to jesus resurrection and and matt as you pointed out it's the relationship between the pouring out of the spirit in the book of Acts to Jesus resurrection. So Alan Thompson connects that and it is it's one of the best I think in the series yes. and it is really really good. I I really uh re- I recommend that to students all the time and so if you want if you're looking for good books on the resurrection, please Alan Thompson Acts of the Risen Lord. Yep, and that's in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, which is right. excellent. That that is you're right. I think that's one of the Probably at least one of the ten or the best ten in mm. there. Maybe it makes the top five. It's really good. It's really, really, really good. And it's not 
massive. It's yep. not I didn't think it was particularly difficult to read. Agreed. I can't say enough good things about it. So yeah, amen to go. that. Well, we better wrap this up, Ben. It's been almost an hour. It's been so good. We've enjoyed the flowing conversation, man. We get, uh, you know, we got to get, we got to get moving on with our lives here. I, I, I did want to note you're joining us. I think this is like the third different location out of like the five episodes we've recorded of this. Yeah. Of the podcast. So I'm hoping, I think my goal for the next one is to be driving in my car. <laughs> if we could do like a mobile podcast. Yeah. Yeah, like it, you know, you maybe go. turn on the radio at the same time. I'm, we're really looking for that one. So yeah, yeah. So I'm in my upstairs bedroom today. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we do want to thank everyone for joining us uh, on this episode of the Biblical Theology Briefing. We hope you have a great uh, Easter Sunday, a Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, but Amen. it's right for us to highlight. Amen one particular Sunday as, as, as a special celebration of that. But we hope this has been uh, helpful to everyone in thinking about the resurrection, uh, perhaps from some different angles. And so we look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Biblical Theology Briefing Podcast.